Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah. You live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. Kirtland, Ohio is known for being the headquarters of the Latter-day Saint movement from 1831 to 1837 and is the location of the church's first temple. After the LDS church moved west, the population dwindled but saw a resurgence after World War II. Now it's a popular tourist destination for people who want to see the first LDS temple, which is now used by the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, who now go by the Community of Christ. Jeffrey Lundgren believed he was, I mean, he convinced people that he was a prophet and that he could communicate directly with God. Of course, God was telling him that they should give him their money and give him control of their lives, but it wasn't long before God was telling him they needed to kill. This is Monsters. On December 31, 1989, a man named Keith Johnson met with an ATF agent to inform them that a murder had happened almost nine months prior. 
He told the agent that there were five bodies in the northeast corner of a barn in Kirtland, Ohio. Keith explained that, in a shallow grave in the barn, they would find the bodies of the entire Avery family. Dennis, Cheryl, and their three daughters, 15-year-old Trina, 13-year-old Becky, and 6-year-old Karen. On top of reporting the murder, Keith was hoping to get help locating his wife. Authorities weren't sure if Keith was making up a story in order to get help tracking down his wife, so they started calling relatives of the Averys in an effort to confirm that they were missing. Nobody had seen the family since April, which matched Keith's story. The next day, investigators went out to the vacant property. It hadn't been rented out since the previous tenants had left months before. They entered the barn, but were met with a pile of garbage. They had to start moving things out of the way to be able to see the northeast corner. They finally got down to the bare earth, where they could see the dirt had been disturbed. It was noticeably spongier than where they had walked in. By that evening, a dozen firefighters were on scene pulling debris out of the barn, clearing the way to dig up the ground. As soon as they began digging, they stirred up the unmistakable smell of decomposition. After more dirt was removed from the area, they uncovered part of a human body, and the dig was halted. The small town was not equipped to process a multiple homicide, and now that they knew they were dealing with a murder, the local authorities called in a Lake County Sheriff's Lieutenant who had special training processing crime scenes. The following morning, Lieutenant Daniel Dunlap took over the scene and continued the excavation of the bodies. They finished uncovering the body of Dennis Avery, then they found Cheryl and all three children. The bodies still had duct tape over their heads and their hands and feet had been duct taped together. This entire family was wiped out by a single man and authorities already knew who it was. His name was Jeffrey Lundgren. Born on May 3, 1950 in Independence, Missouri, Jeffrey was the older of two sons. Donald and Lois Lundgren were very strict religious parents. They were devoted members of the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or RLDS. It's basically the LDS Church minus their devotion to Brigham Young. Lois's parents had helped found two RLDS congregations in Independence, and her father was the pastor of both. The Lundgrens were well off financially. Don was the foreman of a construction crew that installed microwave towers for the phone company. By the 1960s, he was making about $25,000 annually when the average annual income was only six or $7,000. In high school, Jeffrey played baseball and lifted weights, but he was described as being very arrogant and his know-it-all attitude alienated him from other kids. People did say that he had a natural ability to memorize verses in the Bible and the Book of Mormon. After graduating high school, Jeffrey began attending Central Missouri State University. It was there that Jeffrey met Alice Keeler, who also came from a family devoted to the RLDS church. She was still a senior in high school, but she had gone to the university to use the library to finish up her English term paper. She finished early at the library and went to the RLDS student building where she was introduced to some of the other students. One of them was Jeffrey Lundgren. When Alice returned to the university in the fall as a freshman, she soon bumped into Jeffrey and he asked her out on a date. Alice was born on January 21, 1951 in Independence, the oldest of four children. 
Her parents, Ralph and Donna Keeler, had moved to the city because that's where the RLDS church believed that Jesus would return to build Zion. Ralph was a welder until he lost feeling in his right leg due to multiple sclerosis. After that, Donna went to work as a cook and the family remained financially strained. After Jeff and Alice started dating, he would be outside of her dorm every morning to walk her to class and be there to walk her to every class in between. If she wanted to go to the library or cafeteria, he would escort her. After she went into her dorm at night, he would then call her and suggest what she wear the next day before telling her to go right to sleep. Alice saw this as being sweet and attentive, but it's absolutely crazy controlling behavior. A week after they started dating, Jeffrey asked Alice to marry him. At the time in Missouri, women could get married at 18, but a man had to get his parents' permission until he was 21. I have no idea why. Jeffrey knew his parents wouldn't approve, but they agreed that they wanted to marry each other as soon as they could. Once they had plans to get married, they began having sex. Alice would later say that she figured they were going to get married anyway, so why wait? What Alice didn't realize was that Jeffrey wasn't going to any of his own classes. He would walk her to her class, and then he would spend the entire class period peeking through a window staring at her. Then he would walk her to her next class and do the same thing. He even joked with her once that he was majoring in Alice. When the semester ended, he had failed all of his classes and was not allowed to continue at the school. Soon after, Alice learned that she was pregnant and that gave Jeffrey's parents a reason to allow him to get married. They didn't want him to marry Alice. They made that clear by calling her a whore, but they still gave him the permission he needed. If there was one thing worse than your son marrying a whore, it was him having a child out of wedlock, clearly. Jeffrey and Alice were married on May 5, 1970 at her RLDS church. Jeffrey knew that he would likely get drafted into the military and be sent to Vietnam, so he preemptively enlisted in the Navy on a delayed entry program. This gave him time before he actually had to report for training, but not enough time to see his first child be born. Their son Damon was born three weeks after Jeffrey left for basic training. After a trip back home to visit, Jeffrey was shipped out to Vietnam in June of 1972. While on the USS Shelton in the waters around Vietnam, they were involved in multiple battles, but not a single round hit the ship. They had engaged with the enemy at least four times, exchanging hundreds of rounds, and not a single one hit the ship. Jeffrey became convinced that the only reason the enemy couldn't hit their ship was because God had made it impossible for them to hit the ship. And of course, this wasn't because God wanted to protect all of the other sailors on the ship. No, fuck those other guys. God was specifically protecting Jeffrey. God needed him. He was important. He was a prophet. Alice said that Jeffrey became increasingly abusive. She wasn't allowed to use money. She wasn't even allowed to know how much money was in the bank. When she asked out of curiosity one day, Jeffrey blew up at her. He would later tell her that she had made him abuse her. She had unleashed that force inside of him, and she was responsible for it. Jeffrey was raised to believe that a man was in complete control of his family, and his wife was only there to serve him. Despite that, when he was discharged from the Navy, they moved in with Alice's parents, and he remained jobless for a while. He eventually re-enrolled at Central Missouri State University, which was paid for by his GI Bill. While at university, Jeffrey began fine-tuning his thoughts to follow a more fundamental view of the RLDS beliefs. 
Through the 50s and 60s, the church began to modernize and it split its followers into two groups. The ones who wanted the church to stay the same and the ones who were pushing for change. One of the most contested proposed changes was to allow women to become priests. For the stubborn fundamentalist group, they were firm that only men could be ordained. This, of course, was because women couldn't be leaders. Their purpose was to serve men, not lead them. Jeffrey, of course, fell into this group. He prided himself on memorizing scripture and being able to use it to debate against the liberal faction. During this time, Jeffrey's friends started noticing his manipulative nature. Jeffrey wasn't just competitive, he was obsessed with winning. If he ever lost anything, a game, a race, or even not having as much of something as someone else, he would become incensed. He started playing tennis with a friend, and since the friend was a good tennis player, he always beat Jeffrey. Jeffrey played him over and over again until one day he finally won a match. A single game. From then on, he would boast to everyone they met how he had practiced and practiced until he finally crushed the friend, making it seem like he always won from that point on. But the friend explained that it was only the one time that Jeffrey won. They played a few more times and Jeffrey never won another game. Then he lost interest because now he had his story of how he'd bested his friend at tennis. In 1976, one of Jeffrey's teachers went on sabbatical and Jeffrey was asked to fill in for him. He and Alice were able to get a loan to purchase a three-bedroom home nearby and everything seemed to be going well, but that was only on the surface. Alice noticed that Jeffrey had opened a post office box and had all of the mail sent there instead of their house. Then she found that he had disconnected the bell inside the phone so when someone called, it wouldn't ring. Finally, a collection agent showed up at the house while Jeffrey was at school. It turned out that they were thousands of dollars in debt and Alice was understandably upset. She took Damon and their second son, Jason, and went to Norfolk to visit a friend from Jeffrey's Navy days. She vented to her friend and told her how upset she was that her husband was hiding things from her. But when Jeffrey showed up in a brand new car, Alice seemed to completely forget about the lies and the debt. She was so excited that Jeffrey had come for her with an extravagant gift, she loaded her bags into the shiny new car and they drove away. Unsurprisingly, Jeffrey never made any payments on the car. He would later blame Alice for their financial problems, claiming that she was materialistic and overspent, but she wasn't allowed any access to their money, so it seems like that was bullshit. Then they got an eviction notice on the house, and Jeffrey dropped out of school being only a few credits shy of graduating. Jeffrey blamed that on Alice as well, but she would later explain that Jeffrey had been caught stealing lab fees from the school, and that's why he left. At this same time, Jeffrey was being considered for a priesthood by his local RLDS congregation, but when he found out that he had been turned down by the president of the church, he dropped out of the congregation. He decided that he was going to teach people about God on his own. Alice recalled him telling her, They're going to regret doing this to me. For a while, Jeffrey worked at a farm that had an on-site cottage where he and his family lived, but he quit after a year, saying he was unsure of his son's safety on the farm. Alice would later say that it was because he got caught stealing hay and selling it on the side. They borrowed money to get an apartment, and Jeffrey claimed that he had gotten a job for Transworld Airline, better known as TWA. He told Alice that he worked nights, inspecting aircraft and fixing any issues, but when a month passed with no paycheck, she asked him about it. 
He told her that there was an accounting problem and that his paycheck would come soon. After a few more weeks, Alice got suspicious, so she broke into his locked desk drawer where she found a bunch of pornography and a letter from their landlord stating that the rent was overdue. Then she called the TWA office to inquire about the paycheck and was informed that there was no Jeffrey Lundgren on their payroll. Alice confronted Jeff and first he lied and said that he really been out looking for a job. Alice asked, in the middle of the night? She knew that wasn't possible. He changed his story and said that he was depressed about not having a job so he would just hang out, see a movie, or sit in a diner and eat pie. He had sold some of their belongings but also wrote a bad check to purchase a rifle which he turned around and sold for $300. This brought the police to their apartment where Jeffrey was handcuffed and taken to jail. Soon, Jeffrey walked back into the apartment and Alice later said she has no idea how he got released or how he got home. But he held her and told her everything would be alright and she believed him. Once again, the young family moved into Alice's parents' house and Alice gave birth to their third child, a daughter named Kristen. They eventually rented an old farmhouse and Jeffrey began working at a hospital repairing medical equipment. Jeffrey had always been consumed with sex. From the minute he convinced Alice to have sex with him the first time, she said that he wanted it multiple times a day. She said that none of it ever involved making sure she enjoyed it, though. Over the years, she began to grow tired of his sexual selfishness, and their sex life suffered. Once in the farmhouse, Alice described that he began incorporating his own feces into their sexual activity. He became angry when this behavior turned Alice off and started disappearing during the night at random times. Then he disappeared for three days, and when he came back, he told Alice that he had spent that time in a motel with a female co-worker. He told her that he wanted to have an affair, but he couldn't go through with it, so they stayed in separate rooms. But he wanted her to know what she had caused him to do. Alice, having lower self-esteem than Eeyore, begged for forgiveness and promised to be a good, subservient wife. Then Jeffrey started writing bad checks all over town and got evicted from the farmhouse for only paying two months' rent during the entire year they had lived there. When the owner returned to the house, he found that his own belongings that were locked in the garage had been taken and used or sold. There were holes in the walls, the carpet was stained, there was a stack of pornography in the closet, and he also found a plastic dildo that had feces dried to it. When he went into the basement, he found that the pipe under the toilet had been cut and it was now just flushing onto the floor. There was a pile of human waste about six feet in diameter on the basement floor. The Lundgrens went back to Alice's parents' house, where Jeffrey, with his wife once again pregnant and having nowhere to live, suddenly announced that he had quit his job. He explained that he could make more money in independence and that they should move back there. His boss would later say that Jeffrey was caught in one of the offices fooling around with the female co-worker he supposedly didn't have an affair with. He was told it would be best if he just quit, and he did. After months of searching, Jeffrey landed a new job at a hospital in Independence, and it paid well enough for him to pay off his debts and rent a nice house nearby. Soon, Jeffrey decided that he wanted another shot at priesthood, and they rejoined the local RLDS congregation. They went to church every Sunday, and Jeffrey volunteered at every event he could. He also played the piano at the Wednesday services. 
He and Alice began meeting everyone they could, especially people who were important in the church. It wasn't long before Jeffrey got word that two elders had recommended him for the priesthood. At the same time, Jeffrey got caught using a company car for personal use and lied about it. When he was caught again a few days later, he was fired, but he quickly found a new job selling medical supplies. It only took a few months before questionable charges started appearing on his company credit card and he was fired from that job as well. This was the last paying job that Jeffrey would ever have. Mormon churches have a fund they use to help out needy Mormon families. The church began paying the Lundgrens rent and utilities, and some other families began donating money to them. They moved in with one of the families at their church and began living off the kindness of others. When people began to question why Jeffrey wasn't looking for another job, he explained that his job now was to serve God, and that God had things for him to do. After a year of unemployment, Jeffrey was ordained into the church, which gave him the ability to preach on Sundays. His first sermon was about God's wrath and how he would destroy the wicked. We'll be right back. Do you want to help yourself feel better? Try Care Of's customized daily vitamins. Dedicating even a few minutes to yourself each day can go a long way, and Care Of is here for support however you spend your you time. With Care Of's compostable daily packs and sustainably sourced ingredient efforts, they're aiming to help you take care of not only your wellness, but also the environment. Take a short, in-depth quiz about your health goals and lifestyle and get personally tailored recommendations based on your answers. You can stick with what Care Of recommends or change up your pack at any time. Taking the quiz was fun and easy, and soon I had a 30-day supply of daily vitamins customized specifically for me. They help me feel better and have more energy during the day. For 50% off your first Care Of order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter code ThisIsMonsters50. That's TakeCareOf.com and enter code ThisIsMonsters50 for 50% off your first Care Of order. In the fall of 1983, Jeffrey began teaching Bible classes at the RLDS Church. He only taught the fundamental principles of the religion and many of the students became upset. The fight between the fundamentalists and the liberals within the church was still going on, but the liberals were winning, and it was making people like Jeffrey desperate to regain control of their religion. He believed that only men should be in charge. His class started attracting fundamentalists like moths to a flame. In April of 1984, the church announced a revelation that allowed women to become ordained as priests. The church had basically ripped down the sign on their clubhouse that said, no girls allowed, and now women were considered equals. This made Jeffrey double down on his fundamentalist teachings. The church leaders didn't like his ideas, and they ended up firing him from the teaching job. Jeffrey began telling Alice that he was being sent visions from God. He told her that he was at the crucifixion of Christ. He said he witnessed it, and then he saw the future. God told him that they were meant to move to Kirtland, Ohio, where he would start his own ministry. Once there, he began volunteering as a guide for tourists at the Kirtland Temple. It didn't pay a wage, but it did provide housing, so they had a place to live and continued living off of church donations. Eventually, church leaders made the horrible decision to put him in charge of the visitor center's treasury. 
Of course, it wasn't long before Jeffrey began stealing money from the gift shop. Ironically, this was about the same time he started teaching Bible classes at this church, and of course, he focused on how vengeful God was and how he would punish all the sinners. You know, while he was stealing from the gift shop. He started telling the students that he was a prophet and saw messages and symbols in the Bible. People said Jeffrey started interpreting the Bible through chiasm, where you read the lines of the passage in a specific order, and some people say it allows you to further manipulate how the verse is interpreted. Jeffrey began gaining fundamentalist followers, and soon they started to move into his house. The first was a man named Kevin Curry, who had known Jeffrey in the Navy and was quickly swept up in his teachings when he moved to Ohio. Of course, Jeffrey told him that, if he was going to live with them, he should just turn over his whole paycheck to him every month. Kevin happily obliged. Jeffrey started telling his followers that Jesus was coming to Ohio, and more people started showing up to follow the self-proclaimed prophet. Dennis and Cheryl Avery were fundamentalists who hated the liberalization of the RLDS church. And though Cheryl was a more intense follower of Jeffrey, they both believed in him as a leader. They sold their house in independence and moved to Kirtland to join Jeffrey's new sect. Though Cheryl was Jeffrey's strongest supporter, he didn't like that she was in control of the family instead of Dennis, which was strange. Cheryl clearly wore the pants in the family, so it was weird that she would be such a strong supporter of keeping women subservient. Some people just can't handle change, I guess. Around the house, the followers started calling Jeffrey Dad and Alice Mom. Jeffrey told the followers that he was in complete control of their lives, their money, and their possessions. The Averys had made $19,000 from the sale of their home and they gave Jeffrey $10,000 of it. In 1986, the RLDS Temple in Kirtland got a new stake president named Reverend Dale Luffman. After his first Sunday sermon, he checked in on Jeffrey's Bible class. He overheard Jeffrey telling the students to ignore the service they had just heard and to only listen to him. He told them to prepare to meet an angry, vengeful God. After the Bible class was over, Reverend Luffman pulled him aside and told him never to teach a class like that again. Jeffrey apologized, but Dale soon noticed that other parishioners were agreeing with him. A year after the Lundgrens moved to Kirtland, the church found $20,000 missing from the visitor's center, and they agreed that if Jeff left, they wouldn't report him to the authorities. Jeffrey found a farmhouse to rent and moved his family and his followers there. He told his cult members that they could only get to heaven if they cleansed the vineyard. The church was becoming overrun with sinners and they had to face God's wrath. Jeffrey said that he was told by God that Dale Luffman and his family needed to be sacrificed. He began planning a violent takeover of the church to happen on May 3, 1988. At the takeover, he planned to publicly execute Reverend Luffman by cutting off his head. The group started practicing military maneuvers and stockpiling weapons. Jeffrey started having his flock watch movies like First Blood and Apocalypse Now. Somehow he believed that would prepare them for a hostile takeover of the church. He told his followers that he had been in a number of covert missions in Vietnam. He claimed to have killed countless Viet Cong, and he cut off their ears as souvenirs. Of course, none of that was true. Jeffrey was never in ground combat in Vietnam. 
Alice would later say that Jeffrey would study military manuals and then burn them, later teaching his followers as if the military tactics were his ideas. Alice would also claim later that this is when she started to realize that her husband was a con man. But if that's true, she didn't do anything to stop him. Kevin Curry didn't want to be part of the plan and fled the cult a few months before the takeover was supposed to happen. He took a bus to Buffalo and stayed in hiding through February and March of 1988. Sometimes he didn't even tell his own mother where he was because he was so afraid that Jeffrey would find him and kill him. And he was right to be scared. All Jeffrey talked about for days after Kevin fled was finding him and killing him. On April 28th, Kevin reported the Temple Takeover plan to the FBI in Buffalo, but they didn't believe him so he called authorities in Kirtland a few days later. With the supposed plan only three days away, Police Chief Dennis Yarborough began staking out Jeffrey's property in the evening, but he didn't see anything suspicious. Not wanting to be wrong and allow a massacre in his town, Chief Yarborough decided to confront Jeffrey. At the end of April, the chief asked Jeffrey to come into the station and he told him that they had gotten reports of people in tactical gear in the orchard on his farm. Jeffrey claimed that he hadn't seen anybody, so Yarborough asked him to keep an eye out for them. He suggested that it was probably just some guys playing with paintball guns, despite knowing for a fact that it was Jeffrey and his followers. Then he told him that the police would also cruise by and keep a closer eye on his property. The chief didn't want to tip off Jeffrey that someone had reported their plan because that could put Kevin in danger. He just wanted the cult leader to know that he was being watched. Then Yarborough called an old army buddy and borrowed a 45 caliber Ingram Mac-10 submachine gun, and he and some other officers staked out the temple for the next three days. If a violent insurrection was going to happen, he sure as hell was not going to get caught outgunned. When the night of May 3rd came and went without incident, Yarborough knew his plan had worked. The chief was right, and at the next scripture class, Jeffrey told his followers that God had visited him and told him that this was not the year that he would return to Kirtland. He said that God was angry that his followers had not repented for all of their sins. They were not yet worthy to be in God's presence. Then Jeff went to each of his followers and told them what their sin was. The only person that was completely free of sin was, you guessed it, Jeffrey the Prophet. By the end of 1988, Jeffrey had brought a new prophecy before his followers, and that was that he needed to become endowed with the power. That involved killing the wicked with a blood sacrifice. He didn't know who had to be killed yet, but once he made the sacrifice, he would have the power to bring them before God. But if any one of them had even the slightest bit of sin left in them, God would kill the entire group. So after the sacrifice, the group would have to go into the wilderness and cleanse themselves of sin by isolating themselves from evil. Then, Jeffrey would be able to bring them before God. See, this is what a lifetime of teaching people to just blindly follow gets you. People who believe that a god is telling a guy with a wicked mullet that he needs to kill people. Jeffrey told his flock that a third of them were made for God. Another third would have to fight for their place with God, and a third of them would die. They could only see the Lord with people who hadn't sinned, so the sinners would need to be killed. 
He explained what the scriptures said, and there was no questioning the scriptures. The followers weren't able to talk to each other about this proclamation that someone in the group would be sacrificed. That was called murmuring, which, of course, was a sin. Jeffrey told his followers that they had to surrender every aspect of their lives, including their thinking, to him. It was no surprise that Jeffrey chose Dennis Avery as the member that would be sacrificed. Jeffrey never liked him, but he was claiming that his entire family needed to die. Not only were these people blindly following a plan to kill someone, now they were following along with a plan to kill innocent children. They believed that God wanted three children to be murdered. I'm sorry, but if that was real, why would someone want to worship that God? If not killing children sends me to hell, I'll gladly burn. The cult members started digging a pit in the barn on April 10, 1989. The dirt had been compacted over the decades and it was rock hard, so it took them five days to dig a pit three feet deep. On the 12th, Jeffrey and Alice went to the Averys and had dinner with them. Then Alice helped Cheryl sort out what they should take with them into the wilderness. They spent time with the family and pretended like they wouldn't be dead in a week. By this time, Jeffrey had backed himself into a corner. If he didn't kill the Averys, his followers would figure out that he was a fraud. He had already tested their faith by backing down from the temple takeover. Not long after that, one of the members left the group and he wasn't able to stop her. If he didn't follow through on the sacrifice, his followers would learn the truth about him, that he was powerless, nothing more than a simple con man. At 11.30 a.m. on the 17th, the entire Avery family was picked up and brought to the farm for lunch. The entire group hung out at the farmhouse until the evening when they also had dinner. Once everyone was finished eating, Jeffrey and a group of followers went out to the barn. Then one of them went back into the farmhouse and told Dennis that Jeffrey wanted to show him something. As soon as Dennis walked into the barn, one of the followers tried to use a stun gun on him, but it malfunctioned. Dennis was then wrestled to the ground and his mouth was taped over and his hands and feet were taped together. The followers threw Dennis into the pit and Jeffrey came out with a 45 caliber revolver. Dennis was shot twice in the back and likely died immediately. Then someone went inside and told Cheryl that Dennis needed her help. Once she entered the barn, she was also tied up with tape. This time, someone started up a chainsaw to muffle the sound of the gunfire. They were intending to do that for all the victims, but Jeffrey was too eager to shoot Dennis. Cheryl was put into the pit, and Jeffrey shot her twice in the chest and once in the abdomen. Next, they got 15-year-old Trina and brought her into the barn where she was also taped up and placed in the pit. Jeffrey tried to shoot her in the head, but she turned at the last minute. Then he shot her twice in the back. 13-year-old Becky was brought into the barn, and after being taped up, she was put into the pit and shot twice. Then, six-year-old Karen was brought into the barn, taped up, and placed into the pit. Jeffrey would later say that he wanted to try a different angle, so he stood over her and fired two bullets straight down into her skull. Jeffrey Lundgren did not kill this family because God told him to. He killed them because he wanted to kill. He wanted to know what it was like to kill people in different ways. One follower later said that Jeffrey had planned to go into the pit and stab the bodies just to see what it felt like, but he ended up changing his mind. This wasn't for God. 
this was a game for Jeff. Jeffrey went back into the farmhouse and announced, It is done. Then his followers got to work, first pouring lime over the bodies and then filling the hole back in with dirt. After the hole was filled, they began piling trash over it to make it harder to find. This whole time, Chief Yarborough was still looking into claims that Jeffrey was going to lead a takeover of the RLDS temple. On the morning of April 18th, only hours after Jeffrey had executed five people in his barn, the FBI and Kirtland PD came to the farmhouse and questioned the members about the temple takeover. They had no idea that there had been a murder there the night before. Jeffrey and his followers had nothing to say about the takeover plan, mainly because there wasn't one anymore. With no answers, authorities left the property and that night, the group took off to West Virginia. Jeffrey was leading them to a place he called the Wilderness, where they would be absolved of any remaining sin. Jeffrey announced that he had spoken to God and that God was pleased with their blood sacrifice. Then he told them that God had given him a new title because he was so Christ-like. His new title was God of the Whole Earth. He said that soon, the second coming of Christ was going to happen. But it never did. What did happen was that Jeffrey spent the next few months using coercion and outright death threats to get other women in the group to have sex with him. Then he proclaimed that one of the women was no longer married to her husband and she was now married to him. Alice was none too thrilled about this announcement. She left the camp and took the kids with her to her parents' house. Soon, Jeffrey left his followers in the Appalachian Mountains and followed Alice back to the Midwest. They stayed at Alice's parents' house for a while before abandoning the group and moving to California. Eventually, the members started to come to their senses and realized that Jeffrey was a false prophet. They realized that they were in a straight-up cult and had sat by as five people were murdered. On January 4th, Jeffrey saw the barn on the news at the motel in San Diego where he and his family were staying. They packed up and moved to a different hotel, and then Jeffrey used a payphone to call Alice's mother, Donna, to ask her to come pick up the kids. He wouldn't tell her where they were, but told her to drive west and call him on a payphone at 9 o'clock. Authorities were already tapping the phones of every friend and family member of the Lundgrens. They traced the call to a payphone in San Diego and sent agents to the area. They staked out the payphone and agents watched Damon, Jeffrey's oldest son, walk to the payphone, talk to his grandmother, and then return to room 29 at the Santa Fe Motel. Multiple agents moved in and arrested Jeffrey, Alice, and Damon. The other three kids were in the room, but they weren't arrested. In the room, they found an AR-15, two Magnum 44 revolvers, and boxes of ammunition. Alice made a statement confirming that Jeffrey had killed the Avery family. She said that the more her husband learned, the more he believed that he was divine. She said he believed he had God's authority to do whatever he wanted. I don't think that Jeffrey ever believed that he was a prophet or that he heard God. He was a lifetime con man who knew he could use religion to manipulate people. Some of the cult members were found to have no involvement in the murders, but most of them were sentenced to a year in prison for obstruction of justice. Other members were sentenced to 7 to 25 years to 15 years to life depending on their level of involvement. 
Alice went to trial, and evidence showed that she was in fact Jeffrey's biggest supporter. She claimed that she had no idea he was actually going to put his sacrifice plan into action. But during her police interview, she said that she knew why Jeff called the Averys to the barn that day. She then tried to claim that what she said during the interview was coerced, but nobody believed her. She was found guilty of complicity to kill, which was viewed as the same as killing someone yourself in the state of Missouri. She was sentenced to 140 years in prison. She continues to claim that she was actually one of Jeffrey's victims, and yes, she was absolutely abused by her husband, but there was just too much evidence that she knew that a family of five was going to be murdered that day. She did nothing to stop it and even actively helped it happen. Damon was also found guilty of aggravated murder because not only had Jeffrey murdered five innocent people, he also had his own son help with the murders. Damon was sentenced to 120 years in prison. Jeffrey's defense wanted an insanity plea, but their own psychiatrist found him to be sane. He showed no interest in the trial as it was happening. He continued to act as if he was some divine creature who was beyond human punishment. Well, that didn't work out so well for him because he was found guilty of five counts of murder and kidnapping and sentenced to death. During sentencing, Jeffrey made a statement. For five hours, he preached that he was a prophet of God and made no apology for murdering five people. He said he couldn't apologize for doing what God commanded him to do. He went down in the biggest ball of flames because he was so unwilling to admit that he was wrong. And justifiably, he was sentenced to death. Jeffrey Lundgren was executed by lethal injection on October 24, 2006. He was 56 years old. A 56-year-old mortal man who lived his life like a monster and died like a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home okay. It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? 
You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. No. Good boy. Keep your hat on, pet. Why? We're playing dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside. When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul annual appeal. Donate locally or at svp.ie. Thank you. Shrink your Christmas bill at Dunn Stores. Delicious free-range 4-kilo Irish turkeys are just 39.99 and incredible unsmoked center-cut Irish ham is now just 13.59 for 2.75 kilos. That's 20% off. King prawn cocktail and oak and peat cold smoked salmon are just 6 euro. Plus, with our 10 or 50 grocery voucher, you save even more. Dunn Stores make Christmas for everyone. Terms and conditions apply. Voucher can be used to next grocery shop of 50 euro or more. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for lucky seven. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on. See CERTAIreland.ie 